The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. First impeachment vote held today. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, September 12th, 2019. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. This week, we learned Trump's been using taxpayer dollars to prop up his failing golf resorts in Ireland and Scotland, and that Vice President Mike Pence and the United States Air Force have assisted in that effort. We learned that U.S. intelligence pulled one of our spies out of Russia to save him from the sloppy handling of classified materials by Trump and his administration. We learned this week that the president whose campaign welcomed Russian help has now attacked all of the measures taken by the Obama administration to punish Russia for its snatching of Crimea. We learned that Trump had scheduled a meeting with Taliban leaders at the Camp David presidential retreat. That's where top government officials met after 9-11 to discuss a response. Trump planned to meet there with one of the two terror groups blamed for the 9-11 attack on the eve of the anniversary of 9-11. We learned that hurricane victims in the Bahamas were allowed to board a cruise ship sent to rescue them, and then 132 of them were told to get off because they didn't have a visa. We've learned that the Bahamian hurricane victims who are allowed to come here, if they have their papers, will not be granted the protected status that's usually granted to disaster victims, allowing them to live and work in the U.S. until it's safe to return to their home countries. We learned that Trump plans to virtually eliminate the asylum the U.S. legally grants to foreigners who are fleeing war, persecution, and famine, and that this will have severe consequences on the U.S. military. And we learned this week that Trump's trade war with China has China buying nearly 23% fewer things from the U.S., while the U.S. is now buying 16% less stuff from China. We learned that Trump is using the Justice Department to go after California and four car makers because they've agreed to use emissions and efficiency standards that are better than his for addressing climate change. We watched as a president who proudly uses laundry markers as pens, obsessed for a week on the reporting of his incorrect claim that Alabama was in the path of a hurricane and his illegally altered weather map. We learned this week that Trump even got officials of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to back up his false claim, contradicting their own scientists at the National Weather Service, who had the audacity to contradict a president who had misled the American people about a matter of public safety. And we were reminded this week that while people die from hurricanes and gun violence, the president's priorities include tweeting attacks on singer John Legend, his wife model Chrissy Teigen, and trusted anchorman Lester Holt. Trump says the admired and trusted anchor didn't give him enough credit for signing a criminal justice reform bill because it is all about him. Today, we'll look more closely at the things we've learned this past week and the things we've witnessed. So where should we begin? With his impeachment, of course. The Democratic-led House Judiciary Committee today approved a draft resolution for formal impeachment hearings just as it had with Nixon and Clinton. Although lawmakers had in July already notified the courts and the public that an impeachment inquiry had begun, this marks their first vote on impeachment. Specifically, this three-page resolution lays out the rules and procedures for what follows in the next few weeks. Having formal impeachment hearings at least theoretically gives lawmakers greater access to documents and witnesses. The rules finalized on Monday of this week also give the president's lawyers more opportunity to respond in writing 
and lawmakers from both parties will be allowed equal time for questions. But congressional lawyers will also ask questions. Their questions are often more substantive than the ones asked by most elected members. The constitutional purpose of formal impeachment hearings is to determine articles of impeachment. The impeachment hearings will also take a wider view than did the Mueller investigation, looking not only at obstruction of justice, but campaign finance violations, emoluments violations, abuse of power, and the president's alleged offer of pardons as bribes to officials who break the law getting his wall built by Election Day 2020. At least one lawmaker wants to also include Trump's acceptance of help from a hostile foreign government in the 2016 election and his attacks on the courts and on the free press. There's so much to do, some of the work will be relegated to House subcommittees, which move much more efficiently than the committees they serve. And time is of the essence. We are already four days into a 40-day session, and the White House is trying to run out the clock. Trump's court battle, arguing that he's allowed to order past and present aides to ignore lawful subpoenas, is the current slowdown. We are awaiting court decisions on that fight over a subpoena to get transcripts from the Mueller grand jury and another to get congressional testimony from former White House lawyer Don McGahn. Those courts are expected to hand down those decisions sometime this fall while the clock is ticking on this legislative session. If court delays keep the Democrats from meeting their goal of having articles of impeachment ready inside this 40 days, they hope those explosive hearings will further damage Trump's election chances by more clearly exposing his crimes. In addition to witnesses who can testify about the campaign finance violations committed through hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, Democrats also plan to grill Trump 2016 campaign manager Corey Lewandowski this coming Tuesday. Lewandowski was not a government employee when Trump reportedly asked him twice to get Jeff Sessions to quash the Mueller investigation. First impeachment vote held today. Impeachment isn't the only pressing matter before the Judiciary Committee. It's also prepared a stack of gun control bills that are ready for a vote by the full House. The full Congress hasn't passed a meaningful gun bill in a quarter century now, but it's closer to ending that dry spell thanks to the continuing bloodbath and the pressure on lawmakers to do something. The leaders of 145 companies have just sent a joint letter to the Republicans who lead the Senate to do exactly those things quickly, calling America's gun crisis unacceptable. Business is telling the Republicans to pass what the Democrats in the House have already passed. The companies include Levi, Airbnb, The Gap, Pinterest, Lyft, and the Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines, as well as two conservative capital equity companies with ties to Jared Kushner and Mitt Romney. Walmart had already written a letter of its own, and some of these companies plan to follow up the letter with lobbying. An increasing number of Republican lawmakers are feeling the pressure, and lawmakers in both parties now seem to agree on two things, better background checks and red flag laws, which allow police to seize guns from those deemed by a court to be unfit to have them. Many Democrats, of course, want more, but they also don't want to miss this opportunity to do something. Having the Taliban up to Camp David two days before we remember 9-11 was Trump's idea, of course. The Taliban gives safe haven to al-Qaeda and each played a role in the 9-11 attack that simultaneously killed about 3,000 Americans on American soil. The failed summit was hatched, pursued, and canceled all inside of a week. The Camp David sleepover with terrorists had been kept secret until Trump tweeted about it. 
But a top U.S. negotiator's talks with the Taliban actually began last year and were reportedly very near a successful conclusion. In nine negotiations over 10 months, this veteran U.S. negotiator got the Taliban to agree to draw down their attacks, cut their ties to al-Qaeda, and help fight terrorism while the U.S. withdrew 5,400 troops over the next four months. Now that deal and those talks are off indefinitely. Trump tweeted Saturday that the secret summit was off after the Taliban admitted responsibility for an attack in Afghanistan that had killed yet another U.S. soldier. The American was with 11 Afghanis who were also killed. But a ceasefire was not a precondition for the talks. The drawdown in attacks was to occur alongside the American troop withdrawal, which begs the question, why did Trump cancel based on a single casualty as tragic as it was? He had repeatedly promised to bring most of our troops home from Afghanistan, and he desperately needs a win right now. And this would have been another historic moment for his legacy, like crossing into North Korea with Kim Jong-un. Trump was ready to sign this new Taliban peace deal on the eve of our 18th remembrance of 9-11 in the secure presidential retreat where this nation's leaders formed a response to that massive attack right after it occurred. All of this to deliver a campaign promise to bring home our troops in Afghanistan, effectively ending America's longest war. But now, nine months of talks, nine months of progress have gone out the window. And Americans, including Republicans, were offended that Trump would invite the Taliban onto American soil and into a secure location in the week of the 9-11 remembrance. Under the agreement that's now off, Trump would have at least been able to cut U.S. troop numbers there back to where they were when he took office. Many Democrats have also wished for a peace deal with the Taliban, but they were hoping it would go a little better than this. The mystery may go even deeper in this mysterious episode. Neither the Taliban nor our own State Department would even confirm there were any talks scheduled at scenic Camp David, Maryland. And now that they've seen how 10 months of talks with the U.S. goes, the Taliban knows this administration just can't be trusted. That's the Taliban view, and increasingly... It's the world view. Over 14,000 American troops are still in Afghanistan. At least 16 U.S. soldiers have been killed there so far this year. The Taliban says now that Trump's peace talks are off, the U.S. should expect even more casualties and more spending on defense. What might have been a Trump triumph is more destined to become another Trump tragedy. White House insiders say Trump is likely to withdraw American troops even without a peace deal now, likely leading to a massive resurgence of the Taliban and al-Qaeda and ISIS. National Security Advisor John Bolton disagreed, and now he's gone. Trump's third National Security Advisor, John Bolton, was against the Taliban talks every step of the way. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was for the talks because he, like Trump, wants to bring home those troops. Bolton and Pompeo appeared to be in a power struggle, Bolton accusing the secretary of trying to box him out of the decision-making on Afghanistan. The failed Taliban summit brought their clash into public view, presenting the image of a chaotic White House. But it was Pompeo, not Bolton, who was chosen to speak for the president on all five of the Sunday morning TV political talk shows this week. Being on five shows in two and a half hours, by the way, is a feat known as the full Ginsburg. Ginsburg was Bill Clinton's lawyer during the Monica Lewinsky scandal, and he was the first person ever to be on all five shows in the same morning. 
Pompeo got that gig while John Bolton stayed home, savoring the death of the Taliban peace talks, but rightfully worrying about his future at the White House. Pompeo said the talks could start up again if the Taliban, quote, behaves. Trump quickly contradicted Pompeo, saying, they're dead as far as I'm concerned. The Taliban says it remains open to talks. Despite being contradicted by Trump, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo won the power struggle with John Bolton by being more willing to bend to Trump's wishes. And Pompeo won big. Yesterday, Trump fired his third national security advisor, saying he strongly disagreed with John Bolton on many issues. Bolton is a hawkish hawk for war. He wanted to bomb Iran, Syria, North Korea, and Venezuela. On the other hand, Bolton did not want Trump to meet directly with Kim Jong-un. He was against the Taliban sleepover at Camp David, and he disagreed with Trump's insistence that Russia rejoin the G7, and Bolton wouldn't let it go even when he saw the boss going another way. Likewise, Trump had bullied Bolton mercilessly with jokes about Bolton's image as a warmonger. Bolton always favored military action over diplomacy. Trump likes what he thinks of as the art of the deal. He loves negotiating, whether he's good at it or not, and he thankfully seems to hate war. In the end, they even disagreed about how their professional relationship concluded. Trump, more than 12,000 lies into his presidency, says Bolton was fired. Bolton says he resigned. See? They can't agree on anything. And now Trump is looking to replace Bolton with a fourth national security advisor in two and a half years. He says he'll announce that replacement next week. No other president has, with three years in office, had four national security advisors. And no other national security advisor has done so much to dismantle the National Security Council he leads. In the White House, Bolton was considered self-promoting. He and his staff were abrasive and confrontational, cutting council meetings to a minimum and keeping the Pentagon and the State Department and other key players out of policy discussions. That's the National Security Council John Bolton leaves behind for whoever's next. With news of Bolton's departure reached the Pentagon, the people who work there cheered. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was not able to hide his smile. Iran said it signals a chance for peace. Oil prices fell on the news of Bolton's departure, and headlines crowed, good riddance. Even if this is a terrible time to lose a national security advisor, another national security advisor. In the meantime, we don't have one, and no national security council to speak of. For now, and from now on, it's Trump and his favorite go-along-to-get-along advisor, Mike Pompeo. Trump's first national security advisor, Mike Flynn, who was compromised by Russia, found out this week he will learn his sentence for lying to the FBI on December 18th. At what was to have been Flynn's sentencing hearing last December 18th, prosecutors called him a model cooperating witness for the prosecution. But Flynn now appears to be angling for a presidential pardon, ending his cooperation, hiring a new lawyer from Fox News, and arguing that the prosecutors are corrupt, not him. That would appear to guarantee Mike Flynn a prison cell where only a pardon from Trump could save him. Trump's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, by the way, has gotten a few hours away from jail recently, being interviewed by prosecutors in New York 
who are looking into the Trump organization's part in the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Cohen is serving a three-year sentence for the campaign finance violations that those payments represent. The Air Force routinely uses the Air National Guard C-17s to carry supplies to U.S. troops in Kuwait from a base in Alaska. That long trip and such a big, heavy plane requires refueling along the way, and that refueling usually occurs in Germany, Spain, or Italy at American bases there. Fuel and the hotel accommodations or base quarters that are also already covered by taxpayers are there waiting for them in those typical spots. But lately, these supply trips have gone many miles out of their way to refuel and refresh at Turnberry, Scotland, in a less populated part of the island 50 miles outside Glasgow. The five-person crews were confused by the new refueling spot. Perhaps they enjoyed the cheap rooms and free rounds of golf, but their per diem allowances left them unable to afford the other amenities of the Trump resort, including the food. This should make it less confusing. Business has been slow at Prestwick Airport, and it was on the verge of shutting down. Were that to happen, it would be a death blow to the resort nearby that's owned by Donald Trump. That resort itself has been struggling, losing $6 million over the last two years. Lately, however, the Prestwick Airport has started making money again thanks to those cargo plane refuelings. Taxpayers are paying for that fuel and paying these higher commercial prices than they pay for the fuel they'd already purchased for the military at a steep military discount. And even though taxpayers have already paid for accommodations at or near what were the typical refueling stops, tax dollars are now paying for military personnel to spend the night at Trump's resort, even if it is at deeply discounted rates. The president appears to be using his office to make a personal profit off the taxpayers. The Turnberry Resort has stopped hemorrhaging so much money, even if it still hasn't quite turned a profit. The airport's doing better, too, collecting over $11 million from the U.S. military since October 2017 during Trump's first year in office. When Politico broke the news and the Washington Post and the New York Times followed up, Trump tweeted, I know nothing about an Air Force plane landing at an airport, which I do not own and have nothing to do with, near Turnberry Resort, which I do own, in Scotland, and filling up with fuel with the crew staying overnight at Turnberry. They have good taste. And then, in all caps, nothing to do with me. We have since learned of the Trump Organization's official announcement of a partnership with the Prestwick Airport that was made in 2014. And we learned this week that the House Oversight Committee has been investigating this since April of this year in a probe that could feed the impeachment hearings. And we learned that for more than four months now, the Defense Department has refused to turn over any documents about these stops at Trump's place. The Pentagon appears to have been aiding in the cover-up of the corruption that has now been exposed. Now the Air Force says it's investigating what experts say would have never been approved by the Pentagon's ethics lawyers that it must have come from outside the usual chain of command. The Air Force also says it's already concluded that no procedures were violated in the decision to refuel near Trump's Scottish resort. What it says it will investigate is whether it's ethically a good choice to stay at a president's properties and how the public might view that. The Air Force takes this very seriously, says the lieutenant general who's deputy head of the Air Mobility Command. He points out the importance of having the trust of the American people and the lawmakers who set the Air Force budget. 
The story broke on the heels of a questionable arrangement to help another Trump resort. That time, Trump's business boost came by way of Vice President Mike Pence, who stayed nearly 200 miles away from the city in which he was taking part in official meetings in Ireland. Pence stayed at Trump's place, at Trump's suggestion. It's where Trump had stayed with his entourage at taxpayer expense during his D-Day anniversary trip to Europe. So that's where Pence and his entourage plus Secret Service stayed, a two-hour helicopter ride away from the place he was supposed to be, and all of this at taxpayer expense. Pence seemed more than happy to help the boss. The House Oversight Committee is investigating that trip, too, along with Trump's plans to hold next year's G7 summit at his golf resort near Miami. That would have the president in broad daylight accepting money from foreign governments, which is a clear violation of the Emoluments Clause of the U.S. Constitution. First impeachment vote held today. Amid the floating corpses and the stench of death, with no power, very little food, and massive flooding, 232 Bahamians who'd already paid for their tickets crowded onto a ferry Sunday evening that would carry them to safety in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. There they would find dry land, shelter from the heat, food, and clean water for drinking and bathing. Then came the announcement on the public address system. All passengers that don't have a U.S. visa, please disembark. 132 of the passengers were forced to get off that boat that would have carried them to safety, and they went back to the stench of death that was their home before Hurricane Dorian. They stood on the docks in disbelief as the ferry pushed away. Until that heart-wrenching departure, Dorian refugees from the Bahamas only needed a passport and proof of no criminal record, and 1,500 of them made it here without a problem. Suddenly, the refugees also needed visas. Customs and Border Protection says the removal of the refugees without visa was a business decision by the company that owns and runs the ferry boat. But it was earlier that day that Trump had told reporters, we quote, have to be very careful about letting people in from the Bahamas, insisting, quote, everybody needs totally proper documentation. The Bahamas, he said, have some very bad people. Republican Florida Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott implored the president to allow all refugees from the Bahamas who have family in the U.S. with or without visas. Customs and Border insist its policies have not changed. Tens of thousands of people are now homeless in the Bahamas, and the death toll from Dorian continues to rise. The rejection of these desperate Bahamians dovetails with the president's obsession with keeping out immigrants of all kinds, even those fleeing war, persecution, and famine. Give us not your tired and poor, but especially don't bring us your hungry. The White House, likely under the direction of top Trump advisor Stephen Miller, is considering a plan to cut in half or end completely the country's refugee program, which was a difficult enough hurdle to clear as it was. The granting of refugee status will have been cut during this administration by 30,000 desperate people. Some of America's most respected retired military officers had written a letter to Trump last week imploring him to reconsider these cuts. The military needs the ability to rescue and relocate locals in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan who substantially assist the U.S. military personnel and U.S. military efforts. These retired admirals and generals say that denying refugee status to those helpers would leave, quote, thousands in harm's way. And they say there would be less incentive for the locals in these conflicts to help the U.S. military. Offering refuge is a vital tool for our military. 
These retired officers say the military consequences of a refugee shutdown would be severe. Refugee admissions have already fallen by 75% in the past two years. Trump is expected to make a decision about what the new refugee limit will be in about a week. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court has ruled that Trump can begin denying asylum at the southern border and to most of the Central American immigrants already scattered across the country. The near ban on asylum will be in effect as the argument over its legality continues in the lower appeals court. One lower court judge has already ruled the Trump policy invalid for being inconsistent with federal law. When our active-duty military personnel need schools and daycare for their children, they have to ask Congress for that money. And Congress has, in fact, approved millions in taxpayer dollars to provide those things for our soldiers, sailors, and airmen and women and their families. But what Congress hath giveth, Trump hath taken away to build his vanity project, his big, beautiful wall on our southern border. The man Trump chose as his defense secretary this week reallocated the money that Congress had earmarked for 127 Defense Department projects to spend it instead on the wall. So they won't be getting the daycare center they need at Joint Base Andrews in Maryland, where Air Force One is parked. The equipment building our troops need at an Army fort in southern Arizona, that's off. The $95 million they were expecting for an engineering center at the United States Military Academy at West Point won't be coming. That money's going to build his wall. The safety violations the Navy shipyard needs to correct at its rundown maintenance buildings in Norfolk, Virginia, off. The safety violations there are so severe the construction has been stopped. It's such a fire hazard. The buildings are kept under watch 24-7. The building that contains... Nuclear materials is even more dangerous. The $26 million they need to fix up the place, gone. All in all, it's just another brick in the wall that Trump promised his supporters. Here he is in his third year in office, and he has not delivered a single additional inch of the wall. Earlier this year, determined to deliver on that promise, Trump used presidential powers to declare an emergency at the border, which gave him some latitude on spending. He took the money from our soldiers and their kids. Actually, he had Defense Secretary Mark Esper do it for him. Esper diverted over $3.5 billion from 127 military projects for the wall. Half of those projects would have been here in the U.S. in 25 of our 50 states. Mexico isn't paying for the wall. U.S. taxpayers are. Our soldiers are paying. Their children are paying. Safety and military readiness and national security are paying for that wall. The $400 million that was supposed to help U.S. military installations in Puerto Rico recover from Hurricane Maria is among the cuts that Mark Esper made on behalf of Donald Trump. The president's also taking $150 million away from FEMA, the agency that deals with natural disasters, particularly hurricanes. The half of that $3.6 million that was to have been spent overseas would have helped our servicemen and women there, but it would have done something else that's pretty important. In 2014, the Obama administration came up with four ways to punish Russia for its seizing of the part of Ukraine known as Crimea. In an act of aggression, Russia had seized some of the land that separated it from some NATO partner countries. Wary of what country Russia might invade next, the Obama administration did these four things. 
It imposed sanctions on Russia. It got Russia kicked out of the G8, which is why it's now the G7. The Obama White House provided military aid to Ukraine so it could defend itself against further Russian aggression. And it developed the European Deterrence Initiative, which provided military aid to vulnerable nations that must not be overtaken by Russia. Among the military money being cut to build Trump's wall, $770 million from the European Deterrence Initiative. If Vladimir Putin would now like the rest of Ukraine and perhaps a few of our NATO allies, Trump has just handed him a golden opportunity, almost an invitation. Ukraine loses $250 million in military assistance. Slovakia loses its planned airfields. Poland will not get its $52 million weapons depot. Jim Townsend, who spent eight years as a NATO specialist for the Pentagon, says to delay ammo facilities in Poland is nuts. The DOD budget is pretty big, he says, adding they could have picked from a lot of other places. This is not a barber shop, says Townsend. This is the front line. Good luck, Ukraine. Good luck, Poland. Good luck to Hungary, Slovakia, and Estonia. Good luck, Italy. The all-for-one and one-for-all spirit of NATO is all but dead. For Vladimir Putin, that's the best gift of all. It is very generous of Trump to push to let Russia back into the G7 after accepting Russian help in the 2016 election. It's the least he could do. Now, about that $250 million that was supposed to help Ukraine defend itself against Russia, it's not quite off the table. Ukraine can still have that money if it will work to hurt Joe Biden's presidential campaign because Trump sees Biden as the biggest opposition threat to his reelection. Trump has asked his national security team, led by John Bolton at the time, to review the funding for Ukraine to make sure it's being spent in the best interest of the United States. Trump's all about making other countries pay their fair share. But it's also a way of holding up the money until Ukraine does the thing it has been asked to do. It has been asked to investigate Joe Biden. In 2016, then-Vice President Biden called for the removal of Ukraine's top prosecutor who had investigated a Ukrainian natural gas company connected to Biden's son, Hunter. That prosecutor has since said he found no proof of wrongdoing by Hunter Biden or, for that matter, his dad. Nevertheless, Trump wants another country to investigate his American political enemy. Trump's holdup of that $250 million for Ukrainian defense is not about Ukraine paying its fair share. It's about hurting Joe Biden and about punishing Ukraine for a failure by its president to back Trump. Trump sent his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, to Ukraine to deliver this ultimatum. Hurt Biden or the 250 mil gets it. And it's all another gift for Putin. It's also the accepting through coercion this time more campaign help from a foreign government. Of those four things that Obama did to punish Russia for snatching Crimea from Ukraine, Trump has curtailed all of them. He's lifted sanctions, pushed to get Russia back into the G7, threatened to cut defense money for Ukraine if it doesn't investigate Joe Biden, and cut money from the European Defense Initiative. All four of the steps the Obama administration took to punish Russia for its military invasion of Ukraine have been bashed and battered by the Trump administration. It's all working out the way Putin hoped it would. For decades, the CIA had a man in the Kremlin, someone who could, over time, photograph documents and eventually work in close proximity to Vladimir Putin. 
Over the years, once he'd been recruited by the CIA, this man was cultivated as a reliable informant. This Russian, spying on behalf of the U.S. and quickly working his way up to bureaucracy, gave our intelligence officers invaluable insight into the workings of the Putin government. Again, this went on for decades. But seeing the way Trump and his administration treat classified material, our intelligence professionals feared it was only a matter of time before this Russian valuable asset would be found out and killed. The U.S. owes this man a great debt, for he is the source who provided crucial data during the 2016 election campaign that confirmed Putin's direct involvement in the interference in that election. In 2017, as the country braced itself for an attack on the 2018 election, the U.S. pulled this heroic spy out of Russia to save his life and brought him to the U.S. for safety. He didn't want to leave his Russia at first, but when he saw Trump giving classified information to Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak in the Oval Office, he knew he was in danger and it was time to get out. In extracting this invaluable spy, the U.S. gave up its eyes and ears inside the Kremlin. U.S. intelligence was forced by the security lapses of this president to give up its best asset and to work in an atmosphere in which it would be even harder than ever to recruit and cultivate a spy inside the Kremlin. Because of a president who ran on the sloppiness of Hillary Clinton's handling of classified information through the use of a private email server. As president, Trump has tweeted more secrets than Clinton ever emailed. So who are we locking up again? Trump was informed about the extraction of that spy when it occurred, but it isn't clear if he was told why. What we do know is that Trump doesn't like spies. He doesn't like using them. He doesn't like relying on what they say. He does not believe crucial information about our adversaries, even when it comes from career professional spies. He also worries that having spies in hostile countries will make those countries even more hostile and damage his chances of befriending their leaders. And to Trump, spies are just another kind of snitch, a stoolie, a rat, a squealer, a tattletale. He doesn't like spies. One senior intelligence official told CNN, Trump believes spies are, quote, people who are selling out their country. An update, by the way, on that nuclear missile explosion in Russia, the missile known as Skyfall. U.S. intelligence reports that the explosion occurred during a mission to recover the failed nuclear-powered missile from the ocean floor. The explosion killed five scientists, two other people, and contaminated the injured and the doctors who treated them, as well as the air, the soil, and the sea. Russia had also attempted a year ago to recover a nuclear-powered missile it had lost at sea. No word on whether it ever succeeded. So far, Russia has had no successful tests of this new missile, and it's too expensive for Russia to pursue very quickly. Vladimir Putin, meanwhile, continues to offer help to Donald Trump, if you consider this helpful. Putin says he offered to sell Trump Russia's latest weapons, including a hypersonic missile system. He says he made that offer back in June when he met with Trump at the G20 in Japan, of which Russia is still a part. I told Donald, said Putin, if you want, we'll sell them to you, and that's how we'll keep everything balanced. The U.S. argued that it will also soon have these weapons, to which Putin says he replied, why waste money when we've already spent it? Among Putin's latest weapons, 
is a nuclear-powered missile, one of which exploded last month on Russia's northwestern coast, spreading radioactive fallout and contamination. Normally, NATO would confront Russia about that accident and demand answers, but these are not normal times. With Trump now speaking for the U.S. and the U.S. being the main funder of NATO, it has not responded this time to that Russian nuclear accident. With Trump wanting Russia back in the G7, the other NATO leaders are reluctant to cross the man who holds the biggest purse strings. Besides, Ukraine and Syria are still keeping NATO very busy. Where we left Weathergate last week, Trump had used his presidential laundry marker to alter an official forecast map to try to prove that he was right about Dorian hitting Alabama, even though he said it after the hurricane had made its right turn up the East Coast. The sun was shining in Alabama as Trump repeated his claim that Alabama was in the path of a storm that was already bashing the Carolina coast. People were laughing at Donald. He didn't like it. He made the White House put out a statement saying he was right. He even made the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration say he was right, which angered the scientists who were there and those who work with them at NOAA's National Weather Service. It was the Birmingham, Alabama office of the Weather Service that spoke up, contradicting the president's warning to Alabama. Trump got Noah to disavow the Birmingham tweet. Sure, it was embarrassing to the president, but nothing is more sacred to these meteorologists and scientists in general than their data being distrusted. Believe us, they were saying, not him, Alabama's in the clear. Never admitting he's wrong or mistaken about anything, Trump spread out, not just attacking the news as fake, but attacking the weather forecast as fake, too. People continued to laugh as Trump's defense of his hand-drawn forecast lasted nearly a week before he handed off that defense to the White House and NOAA. Reality got twisted behind the scenes nearly a week before that twisting was reported. Shortly after the Birmingham Weather Service tweeted its correction of Trump's Alabama warning, a top official at NOAA ordered National Weather Service personnel to keep their opinions out of their statements to the media. On September 4th, the scientists had been put on notice that there is something more important than their science, their president. Now, just has been the case with other government departments and agencies, even the weather department has been politicized, ordered to bend the truth or outright lie to keep the president happy. The scientists at the National Weather Service and NOAA were even angrier when they heard top officials at NOAA bend to the president's will and insult their service and their science by saying that the president was right all along. And then came word that it was Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross who oversees NOAA, which oversees the National Weather Service, that Ross had called up the head of NOAA to say any NOAA employee, including those at the National Weather Service who contradict the president, should be fired. A spokesman for Ross denies he mentioned firings, but does not deny the phone call. Perhaps Ross just called to say hi. We've since learned Ross got his marching orders from acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, who no doubt got his marching orders from a furious Donald Trump. These scientists and meteorologists were not just angry, but embarrassed by their current leadership. And they weren't having it. Thus, a new weather underground was born. This past week at a weather conference in, ironically, Alabama, the head of the Weather Service, Louis Ussolini, got a standing ovation when he sided with the forecasters. He then led the crowd in a standing ovation for the folks from the Birmingham office who had tweeted that correction to the president.
And then on Tuesday in Huntsville, Alabama, the acting administrator of NOAA, Dr. Neil Jacobs, finally stood up for science and for the people who watch the weather for our safety. It was Dr. Jacobs who got that phone call from Wilbur Ross, who'd heard from Mick Mulvaney, who'd heard from the president that the contradiction of his Sharpie map had to be fixed. Without apologizing for backing the president, NOAA Chief Neil Jacobs said weather should not be a partisan issue. He went on to say, we fully support the good intent of the Birmingham office, which was to calm fears and support public safety. A couple of New York Times sources say that at first Jacobs had resisted issuing a statement backing the president's Sharpie fantasy, but stopped resisting once he saw that battle was lost. But fighting back tears before his peers, Jacobs told forecasters this week, I've known some of you for 25 years. I have not changed. There is no pressure to change the way you communicate forecast risk. No one's job is under threat, he said. Not mine, not yours. Adding, the Weather Service team has my full support. Mr. Jacobs took no questions and was escorted out of the room by security guards. The weather folk were fighting back, ignoring threats they would be fired. NOAA's chief scientist is now investigating Weathergate, and House lawmakers are gearing up to do the same first impeachment vote held today. Mitch McConnell tweeted thoughts and prayers for the victims of the mass gun slaughters in El Paso and Dayton, but he refused to call an emergency session to do something because Congress was already into its annual summer break. This week, that break ended, and the Senate Majority Leader and all the other lawmakers returned to Washington. As there were when he left, two bills were on his desk that had already been passed by the House, All Mitch had to do was bring them up for a vote, but in accordance with the wishes of the NRA, he refused to do that too. One of the bills would have expanded the time allotted for background checks from three days to ten. The other was a bipartisan bill that would close background check loopholes for gun shows and online purchases. That second bill has been sitting on McConnell's desk since February. How many mass shootings have we had since then? There is no guarantee that either of these bills would pass Mitch's Republican Senate, considering the heavy NRA influence on that side of the aisle. On the other hand, lawmakers in both parties are feeling the pressure to do something as the 2020 election campaign approaches. 83% of Republican voters favor requiring background checks for all gun buyers. 83% of Republicans. 90% of independents favor them, along with 96% of Democrats. On red flag laws, which allow police to take guns away from people a judge deems dangerous, many Republican lawmakers do favor them. They should. 85% of Republican voters favor them. The public is divided on banning assault weapons and buyback programs. Still a Slight majority favor those ideas. 56% of us like the assault weapons ban. 52% of us like the gun buyback plan. So assault weapon bans and buybacks don't have overwhelming public support. But better background checks and red flag laws do. All Mitch McConnell has to do is put them up for a vote. Pressure his fellow Republicans to fall in line, something he's very good at, and then get Trump to sign them. McConnell says he'll pass whatever Trump likes. Trump has vacillated on the background checks the vast majority of even his Republican voters favor by more than 80%.
With the Arctic Circle warming faster than the rest of the planet, the U.S. state of Alaska is feeling the difference more than most. Insects that had never made their way as far north as Anchorage have now, bringing with them diseases that have never made it that far north. The nearest sea ice is now 125 miles away. Warm water algae blooms have appeared in the Bering Sea for the first time ever. The glaciers are dripping. Dead salmon and walrus are washing ashore. Wildfires fill the sky with smoke. On July 4th of this year, Anchorage was 90 degrees, hotter than it was that day in Key West, Florida. A new report says these hot spots are spreading around the world and that some of those spots have already surpassed the two-degree increase that scientists set as a point of no return. Cut to Washington, D.C. The Trump administration's Justice Department, with William Barr as Attorney General, has launched an antitrust investigation into Ford, Volkswagen, Honda, and BMW for making a deal with California on fuel standards. The standards on which they agreed are better than the president's when it comes to producing less pollution and burning less fossil fuel. Under Trump's plan, cars would actually cost more than they would under the California plan. It's an embarrassment to this president who was trying to loosen the standards set by, say it with me, the Obama administration. So now these automakers, who would have to suit their cars to California standards anyway if they hope to keep selling cars, are being investigated by the Trump administration for coming up with standards that both they and California can live with. Together, the car makers in the Golden State have embarrassed Trump, and he hates that. So he's using all the means at his disposal to go after his political enemies. Now that there's an investigation, BMW headquarters in Germany has warned BMW U.S. to back away from the California deal now that there's a Trump investigation. This week, California clean air officials got a letter from lawyers at Trump's EPA and his transportation department accusing the deal of being illegal. The White House is now looking to strip California of its power to have stricter rules on greenhouse gases, on the greenhouse gases that are melting Alaska. A group of seven South American nations have joined a pact to protect the Amazon rainforest. That carbon-eating, oxygen-producing forest has lost over four million acres so far this year, swept by tens of thousands of wildfires, too many of which were intentionally set to clear land for raising beef cattle for our burgers and soybeans to make up for the ones we're no longer getting from China thanks to Trump's trade war. Those seven neighboring countries are pressuring Bolivia, where many of those fires are burning, to declare an emergency, to declare these fires a national disaster. Bolivia is resisting these declarations, however, having recently shifted its economy from fossil fuels to raising cattle and growing soybeans. In this week that we honor the thousands we lost in the 9-11 attacks and the first responders who gave all that day, Salon.com's Bob Seska is here to talk about some dishonoring. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. One of the lasting injustices of 9-11 is how, for nearly eight years, the Bush-Cheney-Rove administration branded post-9-11 patriotism as exclusively a Republican value. Not even Barack Obama's successful hunt for bin Laden changed all that. Today, 18 years later, it's wearing off, but the grotesque and unforgivable patriotic branding, despite 9-11 occurring on the watch of a feckless Republican administration, continues to resonate today. 
In case you're wondering, it was this hugely successful effort years ago that today allows Donald Trump to get away with lying about 9-11 and with orchestrating a play date at Camp David with the Taliban, literally the enablers of the 9-11 terrorists. But I'd like to focus on the first thing, Trump's lies about appearing at Ground Zero to help with the rescue and recovery efforts after the buildings collapsed. On Wednesday, during a 9-11 commemoration ceremony at the Pentagon, Trump once again said he helped with rescue efforts at Ground Zero. Soon after, I went down to Ground Zero with men who worked for me to try to help in any little way that we could. We were not alone. He didn't do any of that. It's all a lie. Yes, the president continues to brazenly fabricate his participation, or lack thereof, in one of the most solemn efforts in American history, the effort to rescue anyone who might be trapped under the innumerable tons of destroyed architecture at Ground Zero. This disgusting lie is a rank insult to every rescue worker who risked his or her life digging through the toxic rubble, including, by the way, our friend Ches Pazienza. This week wasn't the first time he's told this lie. Here's what he said to NBC News shortly after 9-11. Quote, I have hundreds of men inside working right now, and we're bringing down another 125 in a little while. And they've never done work like this before. And they're hardworking people, but they've never seen anything like it. And they've never done work like this before. It's terrible. Unquote. During a rally a year ago in 2018, Trump told his gullible fanboys, quote, I was there, I watched, and I helped a little bit, unquote. No, he didn't. At the time, the Trump Organization employed around two dozen people. So it's impossible for Trump to have sent hundreds or even 125 of his quote-unquote men to ground zero. Likewise, there's exactly one photograph of Trump in the downtown area of Manhattan on September 18th, 2001, and that's it. No video, no other photos. Granted, there are two videos of Trump being interviewed outside, but those clips are set closer to the Midtown area, miles away from the site. Doesn't that seem strange to you that a man with a dangerously fragile ego and a lust for attention wouldn't have any photographs or videotape of his alleged heroic rescue efforts? Obviously, there'd be photos of him trying to dig with his soft, stumpy hands, maybe an FDNY jacket slung over his pear-shaped body. Perhaps his alter ego, his fake press agent John Barron, would have circulated the photos to every news agency in the country especially the ones that had been unfair to him. But no, nothing. The supposed master of PR and marketing has no record of these efforts, not even the alleged hundreds of Trump employees who accompanied him downtown. Quote, this is the first I'm hearing of it, Richard Ailes, a retired deputy chief with FDNY, told Snopes. There would have been no need for that. Between police, fire, and the construction crews, we had it all covered, unquote. Unable to control himself, Trump also said during a 2015 rally that he could see from his window at Trump Tower victims jumping from the buildings. Quote, I have a window in my apartment that specifically was aimed at the World Trade Center because of the beauty of the whole downtown Manhattan. And I watched as people jumped. 
and I watched the second plane come in, unquote. This is quite possibly the most ridiculous and morbid lie of Trump's morbid and ridiculous ascension to the presidency. Trump Tower is located near the southern tip of Central Park, some four and a half miles from ground zero. There's no way he was able to watch people jumping from the buildings unless he's bionic. The memories of those doomed people leaping from two of the world's tallest buildings to escape the worsening heat and smoke has been smeared by a man so insecure and so brittle, so emotionally and psychologically frail that he had to lie about watching the bodies fall, all in order to win some votes and ratings. Indeed, Trump amplified the Republican Party's exploitation of 9-11 to an all-new and all-grisly extreme. Don't let anyone get away with spreading his lies, especially about this. And don't let anyone latch their politics to that day or the patriotism that followed. This was America's tragedy and America's loss. The world darkened that day, perhaps permanently. And it's only made darker still by a professional con man who continues to make up tall tales about one of the most terrible days in our national history. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. Much more news, a stolen roller coaster, hope in a bottle, and go back to sleep in the final segment after this. First, thank you so much to those of you who support this independent journalism through the PayPal, Amazon, and Fandango links at BuzzBurbank.com. Second, I won't be here next week. I try to bring you about 48 shows a year, but my dad's turning 91 next week, and that only rolls around once. Thank you for your understanding as I travel to be with him. In the meantime, for whatever you do, whatever you've done, thank you. It was a tough week for the vaping industry and the drug industry, and both apparently had it coming. There's no action on guns. Assault weapons will not be banned. But yesterday, the Trump administration announced it will ban flavored e-cigarettes. This comes not only at a time of vaping-related illnesses, but at a time when millions of young people who were not addicted to nicotine before are now. The Food and Drug Administration will outline its plan in the coming weeks, and menthol and mint will be included in the ban. Michigan had banned the sale of flavored e-cigarettes earlier this week. The bans are being considered in New York, Massachusetts, Illinois, and California. The FDA had been slammed for moving so slowly, especially after the death of a sixth vapor this week in Kansas, the other deaths that occurred in Illinois, California, and Indiana. But there have been over 500 vaping-related illnesses in at least 42 states. Many of the victims had vaped a counterfeit THC product. Researchers say they have not yet pinpointed a common cause. Some have pointed to a coating of the lungs with the vitamin E oil used to thicken the liquid in a vaping cartridge, especially in those counterfeit THC cartridges. That vitamin E acetate is not used in medical marijuana cartridges. In the words of a Kansas state health officer, though, on the news of a sixth death, it's time to stop vaping. If you or a loved one is vaping, please stop. Three dozen states have issued health warnings. The Centers for Disease Control said e-cigarettes should not be used by anyone except for those trying to quit cigarettes. And this terrible week for the vaping industry began with a government expose on the leading e-cigarette maker, Juul. 
The FDA declared Monday that Juul had illegally marketed its vaping products as less harmful than cigarettes. The FDA sent Juul a sternly worded letter calling it out for marketing an addictive drug to young people with its many delicious flavors. In school presentations, Juul representatives had called their product safe. The letter warns the e-cig maker to correct these things within the next two weeks or face legal consequences. The FDA has also demanded that Juul turn over documents related to its company practices and the chemicals it uses. The vaping industry has an angry response that says the ban on flavored e-cigs will only lead to more counterfeits on the black market and drive more people back to cigarettes. Purdue Pharma and its owners, the Sackler family, have finally agreed to a settlement for the more than 2,000 lawsuits over its big role in the nation's deadly opioid epidemic that's killed over 200,000 Americans. Purdue is the company that made and marketed OxyContin. If the settlement's approved by a judge, state attorneys general and cities and counties across the country would collect around $11 billion for their clients and for rehabilitation programs the Sacklers would lose their company and some $3 billion of their own personal wealth. But not all of the attorneys general are satisfied with the settlement and their objections could squirrel this deal. Ohio, Connecticut, and others are still pushing for more and hope to get it before the company's inevitable bankruptcy. In six weeks, Purdue Pharma faces a federal trial and nearly three dozen subpoenas from the New York State Attorney General. Now, Pennsylvania has filed suit against Purdue as well. If you live near a gun shop in the city, or if you live in a rural area, you might want to move. A new study shows that Americans with the highest risk of suicide either live near a city gun store or in the middle of farm country. Especially true, the numbers show, in our western states, Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, and New Mexico. Also, Missouri, Arkansas, West Virginia, and Kentucky. Our suicide rate has risen 41% over the past 20 years, and most of the 40,000 gun deaths in 2017 were ruled suicides. National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 800-273-8255. Even with a good economy, the number of Americans with health insurance fell last year for the first time since the Affordable Care Act plans became available. Well, over 27 million people, about 8.5% of our population, have no health insurance. That's 2 million more people than were uninsured the previous year. Efforts by Trump and the Republican Senate to mortally wound the Health Care Act get most of the blame for the decrease, among other things, no longer requiring that people have health insurance by imposing a tax on those who don't, and ending the advertising program that reminded people of ACA enrollment periods. In his first year in office, Trump killed a subsidy program, which drove up people's monthly premiums. Even people who purchased their own private insurance outside the ACA dropped their policies after the premiums went up. The rest of the blame goes to the growing number of companies that no longer provide employee health coverage for whatever reasons. Health care remains one of the top concerns of voters going into the 2020 election. This week's news about the ACA's failing numbers and rising premiums give fuel to the argument by some Democratic presidential hopefuls that the current system isn't working. An attempt by the nation of India to land a robotic spacecraft on the moon has apparently ended in failure. 
The descent of the Chandrayaan-2 began smoothly enough, but at about two miles off the surface, it darted off course and communications were lost. What followed for India's rocket scientists was described as 15 minutes of terror. The lunar surface is already littered with crash debris from the U.S., Russia, the European Space Agency, and Israel. India has since located its lunar lander, although it has still not made contact with it. Tomorrow is not just any Friday the 13th, it's a full moon Friday the 13th, but wait, there's more. It's also a harvest moon and a micro moon, meaning the moon will appear very, very small tomorrow night as we see it at its farthest point in its elliptical orbit around the Earth. It's the opposite of a supermoon when the two orbs are at their closest points. Scientists have studied our oceans for more than 250 years and still find creatures none of us knew existed. The latest discovery would seem hard to miss being eight feet long. We know about electric eels, but Smithsonian scientists have just identified a previously undiscovered species of electric eel. This is more interesting than you'd expect since this eel puts out 850 volts of electricity. All the other eels we know about top out at around 650 volts. And that's why this new eel has been given the Latin name Electrophorus volti. And this electric eel is a really big deal because it was the eel that taught us how to make batteries. There may be more they can teach us, and there is clearly more to learn in the sea, which is why that exploration must continue. News of the latest privacy blunder at Facebook hit at about this time last week. Users' phone numbers have been exposed in an open online database. Well over 400 million users' phone numbers, 133 million in the U.S., 18 million in the U.K. The database was shut down after a technology website alerted Facebook to its foul-up. The tool that allowed the numbers to be collected in the first place has also been shut down. Facebook says it's investigating to find out, among other things, how long these phone numbers were available for the taking. It says many of the phone numbers exposed were old. And just a couple of days later, this happened. Eight states, led by New York, launched a coordinated investigation of Facebook for these blunders and an investigation of both Facebook and Google for possible antitrust violations. The attorneys general of those states seem to be looking to break up these big tech companies, which they believe may be stifling competition. With New York in this are Colorado, Iowa, Nebraska, North Carolina, Ohio, Tennessee, and the District of Columbia, a mixture of red and blue states with a common purpose. Facebook and Google are also being investigated by two federal antitrust agencies, and they've been grilled and lectured by Congress about their business practices. Google, in fact, is being investigated for possible antitrust violations in 50 U.S. states and territories now. California lawmakers voted this week to require Uber, Lyft, and companies like them to treat their contract workers as employees, and Governor Gavin Newsom is expected to sign that bill. This could influence other states. Organized labor would certainly like that, and it's pushing for similar bills in New York, Washington State, and Oregon. As American workers have been pushed off the employee roles and into contract work, they've lost basics like minimum wage, health care, and unemployment pay. California's new law affects a million of that state's workers, including those who deliver food, those who work construction, those who own a franchise, and those who work in a nail salon or as a janitor. 
If they were contractors in California, they're now staff. That news would seem especially painful for Uber, which was forced to lay off 435 workers this week in its second layoff of the year. Shortly after the law passed, though, Uber announced that it would not comply with the new law, saying its drivers are not core to its business. Uber's arguing it's a platform for various services, not just rides, and that Uber is, quote, no stranger to legal battles. The United States Department of Education has gotten a $4.5 million settlement from Michigan State University for failing to report sexual abuse claims about its former team doctor, Larry Nasser. The school's provost has resigned, and the president of Michigan State has promised to take immediate action to address current and future inappropriate behavior. The university remains under federal supervision. Nasser's supervisor is already serving a year in jail. Nasser himself is serving a sentence of up to 175 years in prison for his sex crimes involving more than 332 women. The husband of former vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin has filed for divorce, citing incompatibility of temperament. The divorce papers also put that more clearly, quote, they find it impossible to live together, end quote. The couple has five children, most of whom have also made the news. After serving just three years as Alaska's governor, Palin joined the late John McCain in a bid for the White House, only to lose to Barack Obama and Joe Biden. It, Chapter 2, is the top movie this week with a $91 million take in its opening week. In fact, it's about the only movie that's been selling tickets this week, and It, Chapter 2, hopes to ride that glory into Halloween. There will be more chillers coming, rest assured, for previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets. Firmly click the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. The finalists are in for this year's inductees into the National Toy Hall of Fame in Rochester, New York. The 12 finalists are My Little Pony, Masters of the Universe, Care Bears, The Board Game Risk, Jenga, Magic the Gathering, Matchbox Cars, The Nerf Blaster, the Fisher-Price Corn Popper Push Toy on Wheels, the Coloring Book, and the Smartphone? Six of those will be inducted on November 7th, just in time for Santa. Speaking of matchbox cars, a Florida man, as Hurricane Dorian approached Jacksonville, found there was no room in the garage to protect his car. But he was able to get his smart car through the double doors of his kitchen and in the kitchen the car stayed until the storm had passed. It was the catch of the century, and it wasn't on a football field or a baseball field. It wasn't even on the ground. It was at 250 feet in the air on a speeding roller coaster in Spain. During the wild ride, passenger Samuel Kempf had dropped his iPhone 10 on the floor of the car. He warned his riding partners to be ready to catch it when inertia kept it in place as the car dropped out from under it. Sure enough, the phone went airborne, but it was Sam who caught it one-handed while traveling at 80 miles an hour. If you don't believe it, the catch is recorded on viral video from a camera that was mounted on the front of the car. Kemp was in Spain representing New Zealand at the Fistballing World Championships. Yeah, I didn't know either. It's similar to volleyball, and it has come to the U.S., a roller coaster in Ohio, meanwhile, was stolen. It wasn't a big job. It was a folded-down kiddie coaster hauled away from the Union County Fairgrounds in Marysville, Ohio, by thieves in broad daylight. 
Police are looking for a white Dodge Ram with a flatbed hauling a purple and green trailer. The coaster's cars are alligator-themed, and it's all worth about $50,000. A conga line of British co-workers has broken the world record for the greatest distance ever traveled by a conga line. Employees at the Nationwide Building Society in Burnmouth, England, joined together, conged their way around an athletic track 57 times to rack up that 14 miles. They danced to the tune of Do the Conga, which played on a loop 110 times during that five and a half hours of conga-ing. A New Jersey man's been arrested for going in circles, but in his case, it was the donuts he performed in his car on two of the greens at Donald Trump's New Jersey golf resort. 26-year-old Richard J. McEwen has been charged with criminal mischief by the Bedminster police after being arrested last month for breaking into Taylor Swift's beach house in Rhode Island. The damage at Trump's New Jersey golf course occurred on the same day McEwen was released after the Taylor Swift break-in. The Trump organization says he will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. One of those mobile electric signs that remind you that you're exceeding the speed limit isn't so mobile anymore. Alongside a roadside in Albuquerque, New Mexico, police noticed that the sign was still there and still working, but someone had stolen its tires. A man who lives in Safety Harbor, Florida, near Tampa, awoke at a little after 4 a.m. Tuesday to discover a stranger in the house, cooking and eating. When the two men came face to face, the intruder told the resident, go back to sleep. The resident did not do that. Instead, he dialed 911. This stranger, a 19-year-old Marine, had apparently been drinking and let himself in through an unlocked back door. Police tracked him down in the wooded swamp behind the house. From our Now That's Dedication department, it did not make the children laugh and play at school to see a teacher go into labor and give birth on the sidewalk in front of the school. It happened at a middle school in Denver. The sixth grade teacher was on her way to the hospital going into labor right after presenting an award at a school assembly, but she made it no farther than the sidewalk out front. Another teacher had laid down a sleeping bag to make the sidewalk less painful, not that she'd notice in labor. The healthy baby girl popped out at 8 pounds, 6 ounces. Her mom agrees, by the way, with the use of the word popped. Quoting her, when she was ready, she just said, boom, I'm coming out, adding, I think it will be indicative of her personality. She will be a firecracker. Boom. And dust to dust. Back in Florida where a sheriff's deputy found a bottle on a beach along the Gulf Coast. Inside the bottle were two notes, four dollar bills, and a small pouch of human ashes. One of the notes had been written by a 14-year-old named Peyton, who mourned the passing of his father and wrote that it was, quote, like my granny said, he loved to be free, so that is exactly what we are doing. Son Brian, in his note, wrote that their father had passed on March 9th of this year, adding, more than anything, he longed to be free, so I'm sending him on this one last adventure. The boys explained the four bucks was to cover the cost of a phone call so the finder could let the family know where the bottle ended up. The deputy says he has passed the bottle along to a friend who's a charter boat captain who's agreed to carry the bottle far into the Gulf so his adventure in freedom can continue. 
And it was a message in a bottle that saved the lives of a California family that found itself stranded atop a 40-foot waterfall. It happened on Father's Day weekend at Big Sur State Park, and we just learned the details this week. Curtis Witz, his girlfriend and 13-year-old daughter, were stuck at the top of this 40-foot waterfall. Dad had hiked this before many times, safely even descending the waterfall with a rappelling rope. But on this trip, there was no rappelling rope, and it was suddenly too dangerous to turn back. His girlfriend, however, had brought their receipt from a bar so they could keep score for card games. We are stuck here at the waterfall, she wrote on the back of that receipt. Get help, please. She stuffed the note into a green, hard plastic water bottle, scratched the word help onto the side of the bottle, and let the waterfall carry it away. Other hikers, still unidentified, found the bottle just hours later, but by then it was too dark to begin a search and recovery effort. The morning light brought a helicopter that spotted the letters SOS spelled out in rocks on a blue tarp but it was the message in the bottle that saved them. In Santa Fe, Texas, they're using drones to look for a chimpanzee that may or may not be on the loose there. There have been chimp sightings reported, at least the witnesses say they think it's a chimp. Police called around, but none of the local chimp or monkey owners are missing a primate. So the police, even with their drones out, say they have been unable to substantiate the reports of a chimp on the loose in Santa Fe, Texas. And finally, authorities in Sweden have denied a vanity plate to a man who wanted the letters T-R-U-M-P on the license plate of his American car. Trump. The Swedish government says that combination of letters is offensive, and it says its decision is final. That's okay, says the man, who says, quoting him, I was just drunk and thought it was fun. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back in two weeks with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.